Goes with me to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. This is another Psalm of David. Throughout the Bible, every word points to Jesus Christ in one way or another. Yet, in some texts are more clear than others. This Psalm is one of those that is more clear. We know this because both Peter and Paul preached at least a, and applied at least a portion of this to Jesus as they preach. This is not by accident. They quote this psalm on purpose, and as we look at it this morning, we'll see why. Psalm 16 is shot through with the gospel. In it, we see the promise of the resurrection, not only of believers at the end, but specifically and most importantly, we see the promise about the Holy One whom the Lord has chosen. His Holy One will not see corruption. He will be raised. And because He is raised, all the promises of this psalm and every other promise in all of Scripture is true. So please stand out of respect for God's word one more time as we read Psalm 16 together. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your good and perfect word. Thank you for giving us your very word preserved for us throughout the generations, from, from Moses to David to the prophets and the apostles. You have given us your word that we might know you. We pray that as we look at your word together this morning, you would cause us to see, that you would open blind eyes, that you would unstop deaf ears, that we may see and hear the wondrous things you have given us in this perfect, inspired, inerrant, all-sufficient word. By your spirit, we ask that you would change us, cause us to trust you more, to understand you better, and and to be more like Jesus than we were before. I pray for myself that all I say would be true to the sense and meaning of the text and that you would prevent me from error and that your people would be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I am, as I'm given opportunity, preaching throughout, through, through the Psalms. And it has been a great help for my soul over the past couple of years as I've periodically gotten to immerse myself in this ancient poetry. I am by nature analytical, and a little calculating. I teach math, after all. So I'm grateful to be stretched by having to think hard, think and work hard to understand how these songs of God are meant to be understood. Because they are meant to be understood. Even poetry has a point. It's not always as straightforward as 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it does have a point. And while I work to understand each psalm, I also want to try to avoid the other extreme and, and Avoid pinning it down like a butterfly and examining, examining it as something dead to be analyzed and dissected and inventoried. Hebrew poetry is different than, different than the poetry we're used to. We all know nursery rhymes, that's poetry. 
We just sang hymns, those are poetry too. And in the poetry we know, there is a rhythm to the words and a rhyme scheme and, and some kind of deeper meaning underneath the words. The rhyme and meter of, of Hebrew poetry is different. It rhymes ideas and is structured um, often in, in contrasting these ideas or, or pairing or, or layering similar ideas, all building to a point. In today's psalm, David prays in verse 1, asking the Lord to preserve him. And then in the rest of the psalm, David layers his reasons for his trust in God to answer his prayer. This is a psalm of personal trust, and it is a prophecy. We see the trust throughout the psalm, and the specific prophecy in verse 10. In this prophecy, we see the Son of God speak through David in the same way the Father did in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, when David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It is God the Father speaking to the Son. David is recording a conversation within the Godhead. In verse 10 today, we see the Son speaking to the Father, counting on the promise that the Holy One will not see corruption. This is an Easter promise. The main focus of this psalm is on the Lord and His benefits. David trusts the Lord for His benefits, but not in a transactional way, as in what can I get out of this, but in a Matthew 6.33 sense, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. If we have God, we have everything, come what may. So look at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. We don't know when or for what reason David wrote this psalm. We don't know if he was on the run from Saul or if he was going into battle with the enemies of Israel. We don't know if there's some palace intrigue going on behind the scenes, or if he wrote this while fleeing from one of his sons trying to kill him and take the kingdom, or if he was having some kind of particular difficult, difficulty uh, with something else. We don't know, and, and we can't know, but what we do know is that David began this psalm in trouble. And as we see him do repeatedly, he cries out to the Lord, Preserve me, save me, O God, in you I take refuge. David finds shelter from all that life is throwing at him in the Lord. Not in David's own uh, power as a military hero or in his power as a king, but in the Lord. If David is going to be preserved, he is going, if he is going to survive, the Lord must do it. We get, an, we get an idea of what David means by refuge in Psalm 18, just a few later. Um, in verse 2, which says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield in the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David's hope is in the Lord. He has put all of his eggs in that basket, holding nothing back. He runs to the Lord and hides in him the same way he takes refuge behind a shield in battle. Again, we don't know the particular event, which means that this prayer is for any event. It can be prayed at any time, and so it should be prayed at all the time. We should come every morning before the Lord, understanding that we are His And if we are to live through the day, he must preserve us. Our God is sovereign, in absolute control of all things, doing what he will, when he wills, exactly how he wills. God sits in the heavens and does what he pleases. But he is not a kind of wicked tyrant that must be appeased by throwing virgins in volcanoes every morning. We do not fear God only because he is strong. Our God is omnipotent and holy, and our God is good. How good? Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is why David prays. 
and ask God to preserve him because he is the Lord and he is good. The Lord is so good that in comparison, David has no good outside of him. There is no good apart from its connection to God. There is no good gift that comes to us apart from his hand. There is no thing that comes to us apart from the good and loving and omnipotent hand of God. As James tells us in chapter one of James, in chapter one of James, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This means two things. First, we do not find any good outside of God. We will not find fulfillment or joy or peace if we look outside of what God has provided to us in himself as he has revealed himself in his word. We will not find fulfillment in in disobedience to his word. We will not find peace in rebelling against his creation order. We will not find joy or significance in sin or, or in trying to obey the law in our own strength, trying to earn our way into his good, onto his good side as if we could do that. Friends, our sin goes way deeper than we can imagine. But God's grace goes deeper still. If we are to find true joy, we must come to the Lord and obey him. First, by repenting of our sin and trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, for our righteousness. And then, by obeying him in his power, struggling with all his energy for his glory. And then, and then love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control will all be ours by grace. The second thing that no good gift coming to us apart from the hand of God means is that we cannot add anything to God. He is not enriched by our offerings. He does not need it. God is not a slot machine that we put in our offerings of money and love and good works and then pull the lever and hope for a jackpot. He does not need us. God is perfectly complete in himself as the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this should not cause us to despair and ask, what's the point then? If we can't add anything to God or earn his favor by our efforts, why try? What's the point? God is sufficient in himself. But what should this knowledge of the sufficiency of God in himself cause us to do? Primarily, it should humble us. The knowledge that God needs nothing yet chose us for himself, should humble us and cause us to draw ever closer to the one from whom all good things come. And one of the highest good things that God gives his people is his people. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. David proclaimed his love for the Lord by proclaiming his love, his delight for God's people. The saints are not people who are on a higher spiritual plane than all the rest of us. The saints are all believers, and all believers are saints. They are the ones set apart, those upon whom the Lord has set his love. The saints are those who, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, a people with a purpose, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These are the saints of God. Those who are made a people by God's mercy for his glory. This is the most important thing that we have in common with any other person. 
It is not blood or marriage or friendship or any other arrangement that is most significant in the relationships of God's people. It is the gospel. The gospel binds us together in a way that nothing else can. And if we are to love the Lord, we must love one another. One way to know if you are in a good place in your relationship with the Lord is to examine your relationship with his people. Do you delight in them? Are you genuinely pleased to see the people of God? especially those with whom you gather week by week? Do you enjoy the communion of the saints? When we say that phrase in the creed each week, do you understand what that means? It does not mean what the Roman Catholics think, that we commune with those who died, that we pray to them and they pass along our requests. We have no mediator but Christ. The communion of the saints means, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are common partakers of him. And, and of all his riches and glory and gifts, and that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. This means that as we gather, as we live together, we are here for one another. As we share in Christ, we share everything he has given to us with one another. It means that we should all do our best to be at church on Sunday morning because it is good for us. Not just in a general, it's better if everyone's here on Sunday morning because the singing's better and we get to feel good about the number out there on the board. No, we are here to help one another. When you're considering missing church, your thinking should not first be, what will I miss? Or I can just watch it online, so I won't really miss anything. To, to watch online is a good gift for those who really can't be here due to sickness or they can't get out of their house for one reason or another. But it is not a replacement for being here. The question when you miss church is not what will you miss by not being here. The question is what will others miss by your not being here. Part of being a member of a local church is to joyfully and regularly gather with the people of that particular local church. It is actually essential to be here. Something happens when we are gathered together, praying together, singing together, listening to the same sermon together, taking the Lord's Supper together. There's a whole list of one another passages and commands that can only be obeyed together. And if we are going to be together, we must love one another. We must delight in one another. Of course, this verse has implications beyond the local church to every Christian everywhere. But it must start here. It must start with a local church. In the same way that it is impossible to love humanity but hate people, it is impossible to love the global church and the Lord and despise his people. To paraphrase Calvin, we've got to value highly and look up to the, to the devoted saints of God and to make it of utmost import, importance to be with them and to live with them. But we'll only do this if we really see the value of godliness and the excellence of pleasing God and don't let ourselves be distracted by the deceitfulness of the vanity of the world. In contrast to the deep and joyful fellowship among the people of God, those who chase after other gods cannot be a part of this. In the same way that all good things come from the hand of God and no good thing can come apart from him, no good can come from an, an attempted partnership between God's people and those who are not among God's people. As R.C. Sproul says, paganism is a way of life. It is completely inconsistent with trusting God as a sovereign master. Paganism is any religion or system of thought that does not have the triune God as he revealed himself in his word at its center. It doesn't have to be half-naked people dancing around a fire in the woods at night. 
Any system of thought that is not grounded in the truth of God is ultimately bankrupt and will lead to ruin. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. Again, Calvin. Unbelievers who lavish and squander away their substance on idols not only lose all the gifts and offerings which, which they present to them, but also by provoking the wrath of God against themselves, are continually increasing the amount of their miseries. David then, by his example, enjoins believers not only to beware of errors and wicked opinions, but also to abstain from all appearance of giving their consent to them. David will not even speak the names of the idols. He will have nothing to do with them. Paul expands on this idea in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This does not mean that we are to have absolutely nothing to do with unbelievers ever. That would be impossible. As Paul says elsewhere, to do that we would have to leave the world. But it does mean, as John MacArthur says, Christians are not to be bound together with non-Christians in any spiritual enterprise or relationship that would be detrimental to the Christian's testimony within the body of Christ. We must not run after other gods. That way lies ruin. We must hold tenaciously to the word of God and the truths revealed in it. We must not bow to anyone but Christ, come what may. We must not go through the rituals of idolatry. We must not say Caesar is Lord. We must not because Christ is Lord. It is in the Lord that all good is found, and in the Lord that our portion lies. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my portion, my chosen portion, and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This glorious truth is at the heart of this psalm. David is the king of Israel. There is no man more powerful than him. There is no one with more wealth than him. There is no one who could come close to matching him in all the kingdom, yet where does David find his joy his in his fulfillment? But in the Lord and what the Lord has done for him. Also consider that David began this psalm with a cry for deliverance. So this declaration that the lines have fallen in pleasant places is not some prosperity gospel claim that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well forever and ever. Amen. David is calling out to the Lord in a time of trouble, but David knows his end. David knows where his hope lies, and it lies in the Lord. If the Lord is his Lord, then he is his portion. And if David takes refuge in the Lord, then David is the Lord's. And if David is the Lord's, then the Lord will sustain him. It is the sense of God's love for him that allows David to say from the midst of trial, the Lord is my portion. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, even in the midst of trial. One Puritan said, the sense of our Father's love is like honey at the end of every rod. It turns stones into bread and water into wine and the valley of trouble into a door of hope. It makes the biggest evil seem as if they were none or better than none. For it makes our deserts like the garden of the Lord. And when we are on the cross for Christ, even as if we were in paradise with Christ, who would quit his duty for the sake of suffering that has such relief under it? Who would not rather walk in truth when he has such a pleasant medicine to support him than to rely on anything else for his own deliverance? 
It is the Lord, this God who cares for him, that David trusts in. And it is not for nothing. It is the Lord that David delights in. But as he delights in the Lord, everything else is thrown in. As Jesus said, but first seek the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Everything you need to serve the Lord. As David sought after God, the Lord granted him all that he needed to rule over Israel. He sustained David in all things, including wisdom and instruction. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David was chosen by God. The Lord gave himself as his inheritance. David came to faith at the beginning by the grace of God. And David is sustained in his faith by God throughout his life. God continually instructed David day and night. And as David rejoiced in his counsel and in his, in his presence. We may be tempted to think, I wish God would do that for me. I wish God were with me as he, as he was with David. We must understand, brothers and sisters, that we have it better than David. We have the Holy Spirit inside us and the law written on our hearts. It does not get better than that. David rejoiced and delighted in the Lord's gifts and his people and his, in his counsel and his presence. But the greatest gift, as David knew, was the Lord himself. As we see in verse 8, he has set the Lord before him. This is deliberate. David has intentioned and carried out his life in a way that builds around the Lord. The Lord is at the center of his life. Not something he does on the weekends. Not a hobby he enjoys on the side. The Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, is at his right hand. And because of that, come what may, David will not be shaken. He will not be moved from his position in the favor of God. That doesn't mean there will be no trouble in David's life. We all know there was. But it does mean that the end, in the end, David was secure. As are you, Christian. If you have trusted in Christ for your righteousness, if you have, if you have looked to him to deliver you not only from your, your problems that you're facing in your life, but you look to him to deliver you from the problem that stems from inside you, if you have realized by his grace that you are not enough in yourself, but that Christ is, if you have come to him with nothing but the blood of Christ, you are secure. There is nothing that can shake you. If you are Christ, you are his. As Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Is that not cause for rejoicing? Is that not cause for peace? That is cause for great joy. We are doubly secure. We are secure in Jesus Christ and we are secure in the Father. We must rejoice in this. As David does, look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. If it is true that in the Lord we are secure, and it is more true than we could ever hope, then the only response must be praise. It must be rejoicing in the Lord of our salvation. And that is just what David does. Verse 9 begins with therefore, or in light of all that has come before, in light of all the goodness of the Lord, in light of the good gifts of his people, in the light of the justice of God, in light of the inheritance of God himself, in light of David's position in the Lord, in the Lord he is glad, and not just a little. His whole being rejoices. All of him is glad. So long as his position holds, 
He is glad. This is not circumstantial happiness. This is positional joy. There are all kinds of things that make us sad. We get old and our bodies hurt. Our, we get older and our, our children get hurt or do something boneheaded that, boneheaded that hurts themselves or others. The world comes after us. The wickedness around us increases. Any number of, of objectively bad things can happen. And they are all hard and they all cause us to mourn. But any number of those things stacked up and working together cannot remove us from our position in the Lord. And again, Christian, here we have it even better than David. David was looking forward to someone who would come and save him from his sins. We look back and see the work done. It's finished. And we have the Holy Spirit in us. The third person of the triune God lives inside us, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand the glorious things that God has given us in his word. This is astounding. Should we not rejoice? No one can do that but Christians. No one else. No one else can look at all that is happening around us and rejoice. No one can look death in the face and rejoice in hope. Calvin says, No man but him who has learned to place his confidence in God alone and to commit his life and safety to his protection can calmly rejoice. When surrounded with innumerable troubles on all sides, let us be persuaded that the only remedy is to direct our eyes toward God. If we do this, faith will not only calm our minds, but replenish them with fullness of joy. And we can have confidence that all these things are true because of what we find in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. In the first half of this verse, David is speaking of his confidence in the coming resurrection. There's a rock-solid confidence that the Lord will raise up his people on the last day. This is something that any one of the Old Testament saints could have said. It is certainly something that all of God's people in the Old Testament believed. Any one of them could have said with Job, in the same way that Job, in the midst of his great pain, was able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. This is the promise that Martha, the sister of Lazarus, was confident in when, she told, when, when Jesus told her that her brother would rise again. Her answer to him is, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha had a grasp of this promise. But what she didn't understand was that the resurrection was standing right in front of her. This promise of a, of a resurrection is better than what Martha thought because of the second half of Psalm 16, verse 10. This is the prophecy that points to Jesus and his resurrection most explicitly because it could not apply to anyone else. The part of the verse that says, nor let your holy one see corruption or decay. This could only be about Jesus. It cannot, it cannot apply to David or any other Old Testament saint because when David died, his body decayed. When we die, our bodies decay. But the body of Jesus did not decay. God preserved Christ's body from corruption while it was lying in the tomb and then breathed life back into it on Easter morning. That's why this verse could not apply to David or any other human being, mere human being, even though the rest of this psalm can and why this is a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. In John 11, Jesus answers Martha's statement that she knows her brother will be raised in the end by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. 
This promise is at the foundation of our hope. If it is not there, we are lost, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. David trusted that God would deliver him from his trouble in the moment. Whatever was facing him, God would be his portion forever. David trusted that God would deliver him from death because come what may, even death cannot break the promises of God. David trusted that death could not hold the one who was coming to deliver him from sin, and it could not. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection was the down payment, the guarantee that all of those who are in him will be raised in new and imperishable bodies on the last day. It is because of this promise fulfilled in Christ that the promises that came before and the promises that come after are true, including verse 11. You make known to me the paths of life, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Lord made known the path of life to David. It was he who revealed himself to David. It was he who chose David from among his brothers to be king. It was he who molded him into a man after his own heart. It was he who directed Samuel to anoint him with oil. And it was the Lord who caused his spirit to rush upon David from that day forward. It was the Lord's doing. David did not figure this out for himself. He was not inherently better than Saul who came before him. But the Lord, by his grace, showed David the path of life. And again, we have a better guide than even David. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who went before us. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus not only lived a perfect life in our place and died in our place, he rose again, showing us that all who are in him will too. We have a hope beyond this life, a hope that is bigger and better than anything this world has to offer. There's a story I just read about a refugee from Iran. This woman had everything the world could offer, wealth and a, and a social status and a highly respected job as a doctor. This woman was such a fierce Muslim that she marched for the revolution. She studied the Quran the way, the way very few people did. But then she read the Bible and knew in her heart that it was true. When she read the Bible, the Lord showed her the path of life and she trusted in Christ. This led to her having a, a price put on her head and those of her children. Eventually, she became a refugee in Oklahoma with nothing. She went from being a doctor in Iran to cleaning toilets in a hospital in America. But she had Christ. Why would she make the trade? When asked, she said, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is true, and because it's true, when you see that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven is waiting on the other side. The whole story, our whole lives hinge on this fact. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And heaven's waiting. And what's waiting outweighs everything here. The very best thing that could ever happen to you here is as nothing compared to what is waiting there. 
He has gone before us and prepared the way. He is our guarantee. Death cannot hold us because death could not hold our Lord. Matthew Henry says, death destroys the hope of man, but not the hope of a real Christian. Christ's resurrection is an earnest of the believer's resurrection. In this world, our lot is sorrow, but in heaven there is joy, a fullness of joy. Our pleasures here are for a moment, but those at, God right, those at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Through this, your beloved Son and our dear Savior, you will show us, O Lord, the path of life, and you will justify our souls now and raise our bodies by your power at the last day when earthly sorrow shall end in heavenly joy and everlasting happiness. But if you are not in Christ, what is waiting is far worse. Hell is a real place where the real wrath of God will dispense justice forever. And just as the very best thing on earth is as nothing when compared to heaven, the very worst thing on earth is as nothing when compared to hell. If you are not in Christ, this is your end. If you refuse to bow the knee to him, now you will be forced to in the end, and your rebellion will be punished. But it does not have to be this way because of Christ. The very sermon Peter preached to the Jews in Jerusalem on Pentecost from, from Psalm 16 is for you too. Listen to his words and turn to Christ. Acts 2, verses 22 through 33 is a long passage, but I can't preach better than the Bible. Listen to the voice of the God of all creation, repent of your sin, and turn to him in Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set his descendants on the, one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are, yourselves are seeing and hearing. Turn to Christ and live. Turn to him and take refuge in him. Turn to him and find all your good in him. Turn to him and find that he is your portion. Turn to him and find that he is your inheritance. Turn to him and find instruction and wisdom and security and life. Turn to him and find joy. Turn to Christ and find the path of life. Turn to him and find that his presence and his and in his presence, fullness and pleasures forevermore. Turn to Christ. He will have you. You cannot be worse than those who nailed him to the tree. Turn to Christ. Peter said to the very men who delivered Jesus over to be killed, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord calls, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
There is nothing better. There is nothing higher. Come to Christ and live. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are our portion. You are our highest good. You are to be praised. We pray that you would, we would continually turn to you, that we would take refuge in you, that we would delight in your people, that we would turn to your perfect word for instruction and that by your Holy Spirit you would enable us to follow it. We pray that what you have given us in Christ would take over our lives, that we would not just live the Christian life around the edges, but that we would place Christ at the center, at the center of our work, at the center of our families, at the center of our marriages, at the center of our school, at the center of everything. We ask that you would make us secure in, your, in you for our good and your glory. Amen.